How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I'm speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hitmakers make music from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you guys accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the extreme pleasure of interviewing my dear friend and former boss, Theo Hartman. We had a lot of fun talking about everything from his career in the music industry, his career as an architect, and how he got involved into making guitar pedals, all the way to now and the current music he's making. You can check that episode out and lots of other great music podcasts at our network site, pantheonpodcasts.com. You can also check it out at our site, bluegirlproductions.net and anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, I have another great friend on the show. Today, I'm interviewing Adam Thies. If you're a jazz fan and you're local to the Bay Area like I am, then the name Adam Thies probably is one you're well familiar with. However, if you're not local to the Bay Area, Adam Thies is a name I really recommend you know. Adam is known around here and elsewhere for his work as Jazz Mafia, but there's a lot more to his story. Growing up, he found himself learning trombone from his neighbor and immediately fell in love with it. Eventually in high school he got to bass guitar and along the way he picked up a few instruments alongside of them as well. Now Adam is well known as not just the band leader of Jazz Mafia but as a very very talented producer, arranger, multi-instrumentalist and composer and does a lot of really cool projects including 10 years ago, writing an entire hip-hop orchestra. This conversation is a lot of fun, and it will end up being a multi-part conversation. So here is part one with Adam Thies. Mr. Adam Thies, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. We've talked about having you on for a while. <laughs> so I think everyone in the Bay Area knows you as Mr. Jazz Mafia and knows the incredible work you've been doing. And especially now in the middle of the pandemic, you, you've you really flourished with Jazz Mafia and releasing a lot of content and Patreon happy birthdays on Instagram. How, how did the idea for Jazz Mafia start? Um, it was what would be bigger than an idea or more vague than an idea with an idea of being specific, whatever that bigger thing is it's like thoughts in the ether or, uh, you know, you have a lot of people and they kind of have things in common and they tend to just start hanging out more. That's, that's really how it started. So I guess you, know, you could say it was really organic. I'd tried, uh, probably too hard to put bands together. Um, you know, that feeling, you know, when you're, you have a vision, you really want it. You, th- you feel like if you just try harder, it'll you'll get there. And it doesn't always work that way, at least trying trying to do that specific thing. And so for me, I'd, I'd had three or four bands 
played in tons, but led, led three or four after high school. And it just was an uphill battle. It was really hard to get that, that sense of kind of communal, uh, supporting each other, collaborating, working on really ambitious things that don't necessarily have a monetary value, like, you know, writing music. That's, that's just kind of to, to write what you're like a workshop, you know, where you're just writing stuff to try things. All those were were elements that I had struggled with and was had a lot of trouble getting a lot of the bands that I'd been working with to 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 do. And so I think once I gave up, um I had moved to San Francisco and I had kind of, I hadn't given up, but I was I was just kind of like a kid in a candy store just running around all these clubs and seeing <laughs> all these amazing musicians and playing like playing a lot, but more, more just inspired by what I was seeing when I would go out and people I'd meet. And through that experience, probably just changing my perspective or being around so much, so many things that challenged me and got my mind off of like what I mean, what, or what my intentions were. It was just more like, Hey, it's, it's a lot bigger than what you think things are. <laughs> right. And, um, and and then there was a few th- few things that happened that really built my confidence. Like I met a few musicians I really looked up to who supported me, and and through all that, um, this confidence of just like you know I, I what I'm doing has some value to it. I'm not the best around or anything like that. It's not like I'm trying to conquer the world. I just want to be making music with all these awesome people that I'm meeting. And um, I started getting. Uh, some pretty cool gigs in San Francisco. And that's really what led to the jazz mafia is having like a home base, uh, a weekly where I could um, cultivate, you know, like a regular work ethic. And like, you know, some of the things that I said I struggled with or, or in, you know, my first projects, I was able to let things happen more naturally, you know, because when you're doing something in every week, there's a lot of room to grow and to try new things and experiment and also try things out on audiences. And right. you start to find all sorts of things that maybe disproved your theories before. Like if I just get a chance and I can like play this song, that's like the most whatever funkiest, <laughs> fastest it's just going to, and then you realize, ah, it's, that's not always the case. So that's, that was really what was going on when I started, um, in the very late nineties in San Francisco. And, but the, the thing that definitely came out of it was, uh, finding that musicians really do love to support each other. Musicians from different, different scenes love to work together. There's those barriers that might seem like they're there to someone who just got out of college I, I was really surprised I'd meet violin players and they're like, oh, I'd love to experiment and play like some electronic jazz or some hip hop. And um, I guess now that's not as unusual. Like every tiny desk concert, there's like some violin player collaborating with a hip hop artist or something. But, <laughs> right. but uh, in like 1998, no, it was not, <clears throat> not something that was really happening a lot. And so um, that, and then uh <clears throat> Uh, let's see. What's the other thing I was going to say about that? Uh, well, just basically that. Um, oh, and so so different styles, and then also people from the same similar genre, similar scene, which would be sometimes thought of as competing groups. I found right. that with the right 
right uh, setting or, you know, like the nice uh, uh, informal kind of hang, those those walls were actually not as high as uh, I had thought before. And I think a lot of the people kind of, you know, I'm talking about college, like I'd come out of college and in college people like everyone's forming their opinions and, you know, this is like this and this is like that. And that kind of music is whack. And, and, you know, jazz was the pinnacle at jazz school, but also like other kinds of serious music. And so all the, all, it just took a little bit of smashing all those walls down and seeing, wow, this is a wide open world. And so that's where jazz mafia came out of was this just fertile playground of people trying things, supporting each other, and um, after, you know, a few years of that, um, that well, this weekly gig I had in, in North Beach, it the somebody named it and said, this is like a jazz mafia because it was a basement club and um, a lot of different people from the jazz scene. Like if you think of the jazz scene as an umbrella and like there's Latin jazz and there's traditional jazz and there's like post bop and then you get into like hip hop, jazz and mixing electronics, all those, which is a lot. Right. Um, they were all kind of regularly showing up at this underground club and, you know, supporting each other in their like cool way. Like, hey, man, you sounded good. <laughs> you right. Know? Right. And so that was our, our DJ at the time who was one of the co-founders of, of our Jazz Mafia crew uh, aspect, McCarthy DJ aspect. He was the one who said it's like a moth Jazz Mafia because, you know, it's got this kind of underground uh anti marketing angle it's like it's like our little thing it's like our little secret or, or something like that which it was at first <laughs> right well yeah i mean that that's that's kind of the ultimate thing in jazz i mean my band which it's kind of lies on the fringes of jazz and is borderline funk and is borderline x y and z most people i talk to and eventually I kind of just started agreeing with them, started calling us, so you're a jazz band, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's so much of that going around. There, There's so much interest in jazz, and there's so much influence of all of that in music now, which I don't think people necessarily see as much. Maybe, I, I can't tell if it's people being blind or ignorant or, you know, not, not understanding of it, but it's, it's an interesting thing. And I, I, I think jazz mafia has done an interesting job of, of showing that off because you're not just one band. It's, it's very much a collective of different things so much so that what the mafia is up to seven individual groups now, I think. There's, um, there's always, a what we call kind of a roster, which is the groups that were uh, are in full swing and maybe have albums coming out or um, that. So there's usually three, four, five of those and maybe a few variations of them. And right. then, you know, as far as what what's existed, I, I haven't counted, but, you know, it's probably in the 20s or, or 30s of how many like actual brand bands and projects we've had or put out albums up but yeah doing all those at the same time is isn't possible and also the reason that um there are so many different projects is because uh things they're like you know planting a seed and then it it it's some of them sprout <laughs> some of right. them don't uh and then that 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 flowers or turns into something and a lot of times those things they turn into go other places and aren't 
you know, Bay Area thing anymore. Like maybe that the artist who anchored that project moved to New York or moved to Europe, which has happened, you know, just thinking of like one of the founders, one of the first five people that was in the crew, um, he moved to Michael Emino. He was one of the co-founders of Realistic and Realistic Orchestra. He moved mm. to uh, to France uh, after the first three years, you know, and so that project really kind of slowed down or changed when he left. And then I started putting more effort into a different project. And so, uh, and some implode sometimes just like band members don't get along, but for the most part, um, we don't start projects together unless there's a certain, um, camaraderie or understanding or respect. And so usually it's just external factors. Like someone gets a touring gig, or you know, gig with Cirque du Soleil, like Paul Hansen took off to Japan to do Cirque du Soleil show for like 10 years, you know, so you didn't see him, uh, for that time we, that band still kept playing, but, uh, the, the roster changes kind of depending on the the factors that are happening rather than me just muscling through and like well i'm gonna sub out half the band to keep going it's like well there's these other projects that maybe have been on ice for a while and it takes more work <clears throat> in some ways there's a lot of you know looking at google docs and trying to figure out like okay well what would make sense who's in town oh yeah we can get this thing up and running again or we can do an album with these guys especially with you know remote collaboration that's opened up a lot a lot right. more things with people you know moved away or whatever but yeah it it's it feels like about four or five things in over the past year that we've been focusing on um and so that that seems like a good amount cuz otherwise you get that like what it's if it was a record label yeah you could be putting out dozens of things in a year um and people would be able to wrap their brains around like the listening audience but for a kind of like a a band or a crew of bands or a collective and all these things that you know get thrown around of what we do you start getting over that and it's just like i don't even know i can't keep up with those guys you know <laughs> so we try to rein it in a bit right well yeah the i it, it's funny be, I, and i kind of expected this but it's funny just because a, a lot of what you're saying is reminding me of things that have happened in bands that I've been a sideman in or the one band that I've led. And I've probably in my own band, I've had, I think five different iterations of it. That it's kind of, it's kind of like the Miles Davis quartet. There's, there's, you know, we're, we're, we're on to this 10,000th version of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Definitely and, know how that goes. And, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting time nowadays because, those walls have broken down and you can um with with the right people and I'm I'm fortunate to have found them um but with the right people you can do a lot especially right now um if if you know what you're doing and that's that's certainly something that you've done quite well lately with a lot of the socially distanced stuff and and remote sessions and you've been doing a lot of uh, virtual gigs, and I know you were jamming at the Golden Bell parties on Zoom. Uh, some, um, how was the transition once we got into pandemic time, uh, being a remote producer? Um, yeah, I, I, I look upon that time, that transition, whatever, uh, like with really kind of 
fond memories. It wasn't easy. It was a, a lot of work for sure. Kind of right. like the hardest, hardest I've worked personally in, in a long time in some ways. But uh, so, so there's a couple of things to it. Leading up to 2020, one of the biggest things, probably like a five-year goal for me, uh, going back to like 2015, just to say roughly, was to be working a lot more in the studio and running around. I'd say just a lot less running around from club gig to club gig. And and I'd already, probably five years before that, made a decision that I didn't want. I wasn't, my goal wasn't to be a touring musician. So it was like, I was slowly starting to narrow down the millions or, you know, quite a few options that you have as a musician you know, on this planet. And um, so once it was like, okay, I mean, I, I would tour, I would go on a tour with someone if it was like, a, you know, a unicorn tour or something, but I don't want to try to be getting my bands. Like the goal isn't to get my bands up and out in a, in a 15 passenger van, you know, like sleeping right. on couches or you know whatever. So narrowing it down, narrowing it down. And um, as I, as I realized, okay, well, if I'm not going to be doing the club thing, what is, what are people doing in music? The most of the people who'd been telling me, giving me advice, they were more involved in production, writing, um, the, you know, that kind of behind the scenes stuff. And also, you know, like creating content. It's not just like you become some person who, works behind the scenes necessarily. I, I love the interaction, interacting with the fans and connecting with new people and all that. So I knew it needed to keep that spirit. And so I've been working towards that a lot. And it was kind of an uphill battle in that I could feel a lot of resistance from the musicians. Like I've got my studio up and running and everything. And I felt like I was getting a little bit of like, man, why would you want to do less gigs? Like, why should we do less gigs? Like, would, shouldn't we just every time someone calls say yes? I mean, it's not like they're just saying, "Hey, can you come play for free?" You know, it's like we've those are those are off the off the thing. You know, it's like quality, decent gigs, right? And it it was tough. And so the these other things I'd been wanting to get more into were really I felt like was a super uphill battle. Kind of like when I was first starting out, just trying to get gigs. It's like just trying to get the the momentum going was really tricky. And we would do th- things here and there. But as a crew, I'd say our content output was really pretty crappy. Um, we were we were doing lots of live stuff, and you have, end up with like some low quality, shaky iPhone video of this thing that you spent months writing, or what. And so it was kind of uh, something that was really weighing on me. And so, thanks to the COVID pandemic, um, everything had to be more focused on content creation, you know, for lack of a better word, and less on gigging and and so I kind of got my wish in some ways and there was definitely a learning curve for a lot of the artists you know just like you know a lot of people trying to get little their audio interfaces set up and figure out how to use a DAW and all that but it um for the the people that I already had in place like our our team kind of like within Jazz Mafia I said there's there's usually a core uh roster of bands that are working within deeper in the, the, the organization, uh, there's a core creators and they, they go across band, um, band distinctions where they're just people who are like almost like house producers and writers. And so that crew of like five or 10 of us already have been doing a lot of remote collabs just, you know, for tracking stuff and collaborating. So that started just going full speed. And then I started trying to, you know, get everybody, 
who played an instrument or, you know, anybody who's involved in our, our crew to start recording, like, Hey, we're going to need you this year. It's, this is going to go on for a while and, uh, we need to be prepared to just keep, keep thriving. And so there was definitely some, uh, growing pains in those first few months. And, um, uh, you know, some, we, there were some things that were more like experiments that we did that we didn't release cause they just weren't up to par. It's like, Oh great. We recorded a remote collab video, but it doesn't really look that good, <laughs> but it was a good, you know, it's like we're going to class together kind of. Right. So, um, I, I'm really proud of what we did. Of course, it would have been really great to be rocking on some festival stages and, you know, doing things like that we've been doing every year, like Oakland art and soul and outside lands and things. But you know, I there wasn't that many t- days that I woke up and was like, oh, man, we're not playing on a stage in front of a bunch of people today. My life sucks. It was like, OK, we got to film this video and we got to finish this track. We have 10 albums we're <laughs> releasing by the end of the year. And it's just like having something to focus on was a lifesaver for me and, and all the people I was working with. I mean, it, we didn't spend a lot of time um, being depressed about what we didn't have. We were focused on these like kind of impossible things we laid out for ourselves um, that were just self-imposed. But, you know, like if you're working for yourself, that's what you need. You got to have that kind of stuff. And so we we really had to lean into that, not not really having much else uh, outside forces saying, hey, do this, do that. And we had a few gigs here and there. Um, And then we started doing some other things, too, like um, playing distance concerts outdoors with our brass band and, and things. So there was we were just trying everything. Like we were trying everything we could that made sense. Sure. I, I want to continue on this idea, but I want to jump back a little bit because you are like me, a multi-instrumentalist and, and, you know, have played in a bunch of bands far more than I have, but you know, I, I have a ways to go. Uh, how did you make the transition from being a multi-instrumentalist and a band leader to, a producer and a studio guy. Well, one of the things that that super got me into just being a musician um, in high school was messing around with four track tape recorders, and sure. um, there was something that that was like I, you know I'd been playing instruments and stuff since um, you know when you start in fourth or fifth grade, and but something about the liberation of that experience. Uh, and, you know, having little garage bands and stuff was really a big part of it, too. But, but there was something extra special about because I'm kind of a loner uh, uh, as well as um, loving to be around a lot of people. I really appreciate both of those. And I can go really deep on being the loner guy. And so uh, <laughs> I agree. You know, like when I was a kid, I grew up on an, out in a kind of very rural area on a farm. And I would just like for fun, I would just go climb a tree and sit there for two hours. Like, I don't even know what I would think about up there. I would just like stare around, just think about random stuff. You know, I wasn't like trying to do anything in particular. So I'm going to climb a tree. And so that turned that energy or that focus found a good home in recording, just staying up all night. I didn't really know a lot about music theory and it was like, you don't, there's no rules and just go for it. And I, I really found a special world there. It was kind of like getting lost in a fantasy novel or something. And, um, I think once I got to college, there was a lot of rules and it almost made me like ashamed of some of the stuff that I had done at that point because it, it was break. It was, it was not following the rules, like breaking rules in a bad way. 
And so it, it kind of took me uh, uh, maybe 10 years to, to go full circle back to like what really one of the things that got me into music, which was that just creating things in a room by yourself and, you know, arranging is kind of like that too. And I had been doing a lot of arranging. Um, it, once I moved to San Francisco, I got, I, I really got deep into arranging. I kind of got known as an arranger as far as like, that was one of the things if the phone rang, it'd be somebody wanting me to, to do horn charts or arrange this thing for their band, which that kind of is similar to producing, you know, there's a crossover, like a lot of re right. really awesome producers are arrangers as well. And, um, but yeah, I just, I would always, um, the thing that kept me from getting more uh, really deeply into production was just that I was doing so many other things and the technological aspects of it and, um, having time, it was just always something that was like, well, you know, I'm that's next. And, you know, things like the, uh, getting the grant to write the brass was and beats hip hop symphony. Like that basically derailed any of that for like another five years. Cause I got even more deep into composing and arranging and like, band leading and all that stuff at that point when maybe I would have been transitioning into doing more production. So, um, it was just, you know, it's cool to have your goals and your thing, but like life will change and you either go with it or don't. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to apply for this grant to write a, a hip hop symphony for like a year of my life. Just write music. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's like a one in a million thing for a, for any musician. So, yeah, I feel like the pro producing came after all that kind of in after 2010, you know, and especially once I moved to Oakland and had this studio um, where I could basically bring in full bands and record and film and all that. That's that's really when it started to heat up around 2015. And and um, I I was saying yes to more production stuff as opposed to eh, I don't feel like you should call actually this guy because they would do a better job. Um so I started to build my confidence more around that time, you know, having like a place to really try things out and set up, get good drum tones and feel like, oh, yeah, like it's a lot of it's confidence. I think <laughs> just saying like, yeah, I could do that and I can't do everything. If you want to record an album like that, you should go here. But yeah, you want to do that? Let's do that here. And that was the first step, I think, was just building up the confidence for years. Gotcha. Now self-producer to self-producer i'm curious how how do you go about producing and engineering yourself is there is there a split headspace or is it kind of one in the same I, I feel like when i when i ask this question to people who self-produce and self-engineer there's sort of two different sides of 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 the mentality or two different mentalities one where they're they have to you know take off their musician hat or their engineer hat and be producer when they, when they stop playing. And then there's the other side of that coin where it's all the same headspace. Where, where do you consider yourself falling on that spectrum? Um, <clears throat> I'm good at multitasking in some ways, but when it comes to the studio, I like to try to focus on fewer things I've learned. Um, like I definitely, I know, I feel like I know what my limitations are from just trying things out. <clears throat> and, and like, if I have a band that, if I have a band that's, uh, you know, four or five people, I wouldn't try to engineer, produce and 
perform. There's just no way. Like you, you couldn't pay me enough money to do that because yeah, sure. if it was for my own project, because I, I, it's like it's going to sacrifice the 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 depth of what like we can do. And um, but I've I, I've had good good experiences having one of my engineers here and like helping them set up and playing you know playing an instrument in the session and producing like that that feels pretty good that's a handful you know i like i i wouldn't recommend more than that unless someone's just like a studio ace like went to college or you know took some like serious courses on audio engineering and run just everything from like file organization like all that stuff because that can all really trip you up in the creative space but you know, if it's like me and my drummer and we're laying down three tracks, like, yeah, don't, don't hire, I'm not going to hire someone to come in for that. And that's, that's cool. But I will definitely, the overall product is sometimes like not as good as if there was an engineer there focusing on, oh, yeah, that, that kick drum mic, I'm noticing it's like, there's, you know, it's like something's wrong with it. <laughs> you know, like every once in a while, it kind of does this weird clipping thing or something and like that's something I would miss maybe if I'm in there playing with my headphones on and all that so uh you know you just do what you can but by myself I uh I I there's a lot of different ways that I work when I'm just like producing a track for someone and like doing the late night stuff trying this and trying that and then like sending them a demo an updated version the next day and then working on it the next night that that's um really because be depends on the song but uh that's that's kind of like goes it's back to the f full circle thing of like what i got into music i just love that being able to sit down and get deep into a song and and kind of forget about what you're supposed to do or what uh you know what people are expecting or what would be cool i mean that's a that's a part of it for sure but um, but by, when I'm by myself, it's just such a different thing. Like, I think it's just the engineering part, really. It's like when you get into the logistics of having people over and doing all that stuff, for me, that's where I'm like, something turns off. Some part of my creative thing gets a little bit hampered because I don't want to screw up the track. You know, like if you have someone come over and you like mess up something with the mic, and you have to recut the track. Ugh, that's the worst feeling. <laughs> <laughs> right so, you know until i'm i'm like really just inside out confident as an engineer i think uh they're they're kind of two different worlds sure <clears throat> but yeah i i think you know if we all had engineers around we would be different producers and so for me like i have to compartmentalize it more and say okay cool so when i'm working with bands this is you know this is one way i do it and you know it's been actually only there's been very few times that i've been just producing and not playing on something um it's it's a such a relaxing feeling to just be chilling there in the in the booth and like putting a hundred percent of all your focus on the big picture and you're not like worrying about your part that you're playing on your instrument <laughs> that's right. pretty fun but yeah that's not something i get get to do very much especially these days sure now, this is actually a question I've actually wanted to ask you for a long time because you do a lot of stuff on, on the sort of hip-hop uh, end of the jazz spectrum and you do some more traditional jazz and then you do very brass band style things. You're, you're kind of all over the place when it comes to 
production and where you lie on the producer spectrum. So if if hip hop production is one end of the spectrum and like old school, you know, producer sitting next to the engineer in the control room, uh, kind of Rick Rubin style is the other. Where do you where do you think you where do you feel you sit on the producer side? Are you building tracks like a Flying Lotus or are you more pre- feel your preference is more kind of a Rick Rubin style of producer? Uh, both. I, I really love both. Um... I respect people who live more in one realm or are known more in one realm or whatever. But um, I there's something that's really special about getting um, like assembling the right team, virtual or in person, you know. But uh, I'm sure. kind of imagining in my my romantic brain when bands could be like in a room and there wasn't like all this COVID protocol and stuff. And so you get the right people together for the right song. Those two things are important. And then the every all the other magic that happens that's like not on on the sheet music or not, you know, it's just that the things that are in the ether, <clears throat> that is a magic that I really um, gravitated towards when I started working with producers who had that knack. Like I'm going into a session, I don't know any, no one's had to send a plan or a chart or even a demo. It's like you just show up and, it's like, oh man, that guy really knew how to handle the situation and make something happen. And, you know, usually the music's kind of simpler with those sorts of uh, approaches. It's like singer songwriter music does that a lot. And at least with, with the things I've been involved in, and it's like you show up and you, uh, they, they're really good at getting the right tones. And so that, that appeals to me a lot coming from the jazz realm too, like the acoustic acoustic jazz and acoustic music because so much of it is about the performance and capturing the mood and in in the room and so um like a lot of the cosa nostra string stuff we've done we did in that way like for some of the slower songs or more um spacious songs um those are the ones that to me suffer the most uh, with acoustic instruments in the studio like like with horns and strings, I guess not not so much like acoustic guitars and things, but uh, it's just you know you put reverb plug on plugins and stuff. But the thing is, you don't play the same when even if you put artificial reverb on for the the headphone mixes and stuff, it's it's not the same as being in a room where your uh, your your ears can like triangulate and like fe- you get the feeling of being in a big space. So we recorded in uh, a church that has like a you know pretty serious uh, decay in there in Oakland. And uh, so we did some of our slower, more spacious songs in there. And then some of the other songs were built more like hip hop style where I just, you know, I had to demo and I had the drummer come over and track his drums and then we added strings. And so uh, for me, it's like, what does this song need? And uh, I've definitely made the mistake of kind of picking the wrong approach before, like probably putting like a hip hop, type thing in too live of a space thinking, Oh, the vibe's going to be cool. And then once you start playing, it's like louder than you thought it was going to be right. <laughs> it, like the, the, the um, collective sound of, of all the instruments together in the space. We're like, Oh yeah, that, that didn't work the way I thought it would. Whereas, you know, if, and then you can also do the thing where you're like, Oh yeah, we'll piece it together, do it that way. And then you lose some of the, that feeling that even though you were in a big room and it was kind of like too loud, there's a certain 
peripheral vision and com, you know nonverbal communication and all that kind of stuff that you get that you lose when you're not all there doing it together or even if you are but you're crammed in a tiny space with like gobos up and stuff so i think as i do it more i'm just trying to filter that out like okay well this is an easy decision don't make it a hard decision where what approach does this need um and i enjoy either one so as i as i've looked back at what i've done you know uh, what i've created as a producer um i made some really good decisions in those ways and i made some that i would change but i think move as i mature and do it more it's like you know you can make either one work it's not like oh crap we should have done this this way or or you can even release a song with two versions right like oh here's like the one that i did that's more beat maker style and then here's the one that we did that's more acoustic and so now it's like damn this is cool. We are, we're getting all these different approaches. There's not one right or wrong way. You just got to know how to make each one happen. Right. It's funny that you mentioned the two version thing. I'm in the middle of a song that I've been working on for months uh, doing that right now. Um, this is more of a personal question from me more than a, than a, a production question. It, it, multi-instrumentalist to multi-instrumentalist. You, you play a lot of instruments um, brass instruments. You also play bass and you're, you're known as kind of the bass and trombone guy in the <laughs> Bay area, aside from, you know, your, your great, uh, uh, reputation as, as leader of jazz mafia. What got you into being the bass and trombone guy? What, what was your inspiration to choose certain, just in general, what was the, the idea to choose those instruments over anything else that you play is kind of your mains. Um, you know, I think a lot, how a lot of us start instruments is kind of random and there's a beauty to that for trombone. It was pretty random. Uh, That was my first instrument. Um, it was really random because it's what my neighbor played. Um, and so my mom just one day was like, Hey, you know, would you want be interested in taking lessons from, you know, your next door neighbor, Doug, and uh, I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, you sure you don't want to go like look at it, check it out first? I was like, okay. And he like pulled it out of the case. And it was, I remember it was a silver brass, you know, it was really shiny and silver brass. And mm-hmm. the second he pulled it out, I was like, yes. <laughs> and my mom was like, dude, you got to like at least check it out first. But I just, it just looked cool, man. All the like curvy tubes and shininess to it. It looked in the slide. So it could have, if it was a trumpet, I would have said yes. If it was, uh, flute maybe not because you know at that age I was like there was the whole thing of like oh flutes are for girls and if it was a clarinet who, who knows I don't know but definitely anything that kind of looked cool if it was a guitar or a drum set or uh, any of that I would have just been like yeah so uh but it happened to be trombone but the one random thing that I I was going through a lot of old music that I listened to growing up like riding the bus to school before I played an instrument and um I found I was going I found this uh a bunch I found this group the Scorpions that I used to listen to I mean you know they're mm. they're a huge band um but to me I hadn't thought of the Scorpions in a long time <clears throat> so that's why I said I found them and uh I remembered like when I was in 3rd grade 4th grade like we would air band to the Scorpions and I was always the bass player I always loved the the bass is something that I really connected with before I was a musician and I think that's stuff's really interesting like thinking about 
just how our brains might be naturally wired and all that. And I, I definitely, music didn't come easy to me. I didn't come from a musical family, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there were certain things where I feel like my brain was wired for. And there's some other things with like composition and arranging that, that have also been there since the very beginning. And so bass uh, was natural. And then a strange thing happened when I got to high school where, you know, you're starting to like jam with people. Um, there was no bass players, like not even a bad one. There was just no bass players at our school. It was a small Oof. school. And so it was kind of like, uh, yeah, I'll play. I wasn't like, oh, I used to air guitar it. But <laughs> but it just was this natural thing, you know. And trombone and bass, well, they, they definitely have more things in common than like clarinet and trombone or like there there's just certain things that they do have in common. They're not like the same or anything, but. Um, you know, by the time I picked up a bass, I definitely played some bass lines on trombone and some like weird umpa music or something or in marches. And so that there's there's, you know, a number of people who double um, who have similar stories, I think. And um, yeah, for me, it just bass was like this fun outlet of, you know, it was like rebellion. I never took a bass lesson. I, I always did it more for an outlet and for fun and like to play punk rock music or and then funk and the other styles of music that weren't weren't my soul wasn't getting fed from from playing trombone just from you know the limited options you have when you're like a kid and getting into college and stuff right well yeah i mean i I think that's something you and i have in common at least with bass guitar when it comes to upright i did take lessons from marcus shelby who you know shout out to marcus shelby Mm -hmm. doing crazy things nowadays and used to gig with you and at Bruno's in the late nineties, I just, just random aside, we used to play, uh, I, I was in his big band, the the youth orchestra at the community music center. Mm. And the first song that was brought to the table when I first joined as the drummer was a song called 20th and mission, which he wrote about, it's an instrumental, but he wrote it about his gigs at Bruno's and. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the rest of it. But yeah, I uh, do remember that song. Da, 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 something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and he 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 wrote that about those gigs that he did with you at Bruno's. It it was a it was a very funny thing. I was like, oh wait a minute. <laughs> you did these. Right. Um yeah, I I the bass is an interesting one, and I know a lot of bone players that I know, even the guy in my own band, um, he, he, he's a, his other instrument is guitar aside from trombone. But I know when he's in my studio or hanging out with me and we're just jamming, uh, oftentimes he will end up picking up a bass because it's like this, this interesting, it, it, it's interesting to me anyway. I don't know if he necessarily noticed it, but it, it's kind of this thing that he gravitates towards, I think, because of, his time playing trombone um so it's i i find it very cool it could be a really powerful instrument too from the um like obviously bass players aren't the ones that are household names very much at all most most people can't name many bass players like paul mccartney but he doesn't count because the reason they're naming him is because you know he's like one of the most famous musicians singers ever but um but it can be a really powerful instrument kind of 
in the layer beneath the layer that most people see when they see a band or hear when they're listening. And that's that it controls so much rhythm and harmony, you know, it's like kind of like the drums and it's kind of like a guitar. And, um, it, uh, there's a lot of bass player MDs that are, you know, formidable (laughs) people on stage, like really doing a lot to control where things are going because, um, you know, you can, you can wield a lot of power with that instrument. Um, like if you say, if you're playing guitar and I mean, I'm sure you could argue against this, but if you're a guitar player and the band isn't going where you want and you say, I'm just gonna, I'm going to change, go up a minor third. Like you'll just sound like a guitar player <laughs> playing up a minor third and like the band could just keep powering on. But if the bass decides like, I want this thing to go faster and we're going to like change to the four chord, they can basically single-handedly do that, uh, you know, with like a little hand motion and whatever. And so that's something that, uh, I've, It makes sense, but it could just be a funny theory of mine as well. I mean, who knows? Well, no, I I completely agree with that. And I I think of both hip-hop that I listen to and all the R&B and the jazz stuff from from the 70s and the funk stuff from the 70s and late 60s. And I, I think of, you know... I had an interesting conversation with Carlos Aguirre um, just a couple of days ago. I was uh, he he had me um, edit uh, some of some of his album, which is coming out probably will be out now by the time by the time everybody's listening to this. And we were talking about it, and we got to the last track that we had to finish, and it was this most tedious process because there was just a lot of extraneous stuff to to dig through it was you know this it, it was kind of uh, uh excavating uh this this song from you know old takes and other stuff and i you know you 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 played trumpet and trombone on it um this the song for anybody interested is called wish a motherfucker would um and he and i were talking about it and and I had asked him what his favorite verse aside from his was, and he was explaining it. And then he asked me the same question. I, I said, well, aside from yours, and I really love yours on this one, it would be uh, MC Solati. And I explained that it was, uh, at, I've been a drummer now, I think in April, it's going to be 16 years. And I can hear the drummer mentality. And what I didn't, tell him was you know I, I i can think of any number of r&b or funk songs or jazz songs from that era that i know both of them listen to that we've talked about listening to that i i can just hear in the way they rap and it's kind of a similar vibe when it comes to bass because in that music and i think you'll agree with me um the, the drummers really have the 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 most control over a lot of the way that music feels but how that feel is interpreted especially when you get into that 70s funk thing the the stevie wonder and and everything else there there would not be that music if there wasn't a strong foundation with a bass line yeah yeah big time so so i i completely when i think of bass i I feel like it's you know kind of the heart of where everything goes 
Yeah, yeah, especially in, in like groove music is kind of the big umbrella that I right. use a lot. And I didn't make it up, but you know, it just kind of like refers to a lot of stuff that's like heavy groove based, a lot of ostinatos, which is in jazz for sure. But the swing, swinging, you know, walking feel is not kind of what I would think of when I think of groove music as much as like something where bass lines playing a pattern and it locks with drums and, and all that. Yeah, big, big time um, drums and bass have have so much like playing playing that those styles playing hip-hop or funk for example without a drummer it's not impossible but it's not every day that someone's going to be like oh check out did you hear the new blah 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 funk song and there's no drums on it you know it's like that'd be very unusual uh that would be under the rule breaking category (laughs) and and likewise there would it would be a very slim chance that you'd find a really cool funk song without some kind of bass line, maybe synth yeah. bass. Even in rock, bass, like White Stripes like was such a a rule breaker, right? Because there's there was like quote no bass player or whatever, right? Um, but you know, you're but even so, they still figured out a way to kind of do a bass line thing, or yeah. he had a had a way to do the bass line thing with guitar. Yeah, it's like still felt. Right. I mean, I, I think of bringing up the White Stripes. I mean, their most popular song that everybody knows would be Seven Nation Army. And, right. <laughs> and that song is almost entirely bass line. Right. It's like he had to choose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we've been talking a lot about jazz and upright ba- and bass. Um, and so I'm curious, just from your headspace as a bass player, did upright ever cross your mind as something you wanted to play? Uh, not at all for a long time. And then uh, I was playing in this this group with this artist, uh, Eric Lindell, who he grew up where I grew up in like West Sonoma County. And um, he kind of became a one of the, the top like uh, people, uh, artists people would want to go see up there, you know, like. Sure. I wouldn't say regional because it was like nobody even in Marin knew who he was, but he was huge in Sonoma County. And and then he got very well known, like, you know, he's a, a, a national artist now. But uh, when Eric was very small time, we would we played in do- dozens of bands together. He was kind of like, you know, you mentioned Miles, like he had that artist uh, thing where he wanted like every year to change his style slightly, like change the band to a different instrumentation different um uh, like subgenre of blues soul or whatever and so um he got really into swing the swing um uh there was groups like um what were some of the groups that was doing well cherry pop and daddies were around this is like uh the very early 90s or yeah early 90s but it, the swing craze hadn't hit it wasn't like the mid 90s swing and um so he was following these groups and wanted to do more of that. And I was playing electric bass. And so he kind of talked me into it. But thing is, playing like jump blues uh, on upright is totally different than playing like contemporary jazz and like having to sight read charts. And so I was down with that. That was cool. But it was something that I didn't even mention when I was like going to a jam session in San Francisco. Like I did not want anyone to know that I was attempting to <laughs> mess with that instrument for many reasons. And um, uh, Marcus might remember this, but one time he, he had heard that I played upright 
or some somehow I don't know. Maybe he just like was tired and was hoping I could somehow slog through this the standard. And so he called me into playing, and uh, you know I just sucked so bad. Like the drummer was probably like, "Why did Marcus ask this dude to get up here?" Because it's a you know it's an athletic instrument, and uh, yeah. I didn't I did not have the uh, the endurance to to play that instrument on like a twenty minute standard, but. Uh, I, I, it really did make a difference on the jump blues stuff, like that sound of, as opposed to electric bass, it's huge. It's a world of difference. Um, and so, uh, I, once the swing, so when swing era hit, obviously I like kind of ha- knew how to play an upright. So I played it a lot in, in swing bands in the mid nineties. And, um, until I realized, oh, I don't need to play bass cause I'm in San Francisco. <laughs> There's tons of bass right. players and I'm not playing enough trombone. And so that was probably one of the smartest things I ever did, uh, was to just like say, what are my priorities? And so we started playing with like real, real upright bass players and that sounded better. Like, so my drummers were happy, everyone's happy. And then I was having trouble like finding the right trombone players who knew all my like weird horn things that I wanted to have happen. So so that all worked out nice. And now all I, so then I didn't touch an upright for a long time, except for like a late night jam or something. And then, um, I started babysitting one for my friend, Chris, uh, who didn't have room, room for it anymore. And it turns out as a kind of like revisiting everything, like, like reevaluating everything about music, you know, 20, 30 years later, since I started gigging and doing stuff, there's a lot of cool things you can do with an upright bass, even if you don't consider yourself like a, a upright bass player per se. But, you know, you can like kind of make play a few things on it in the recording studio, like a lot of hip hop tracks, just it's the sound. It's like exactly what the track needed or kind of singer songwriter type stuff. Like I put the electric down and pick up the upright and uh, oh, it's sweet. It's like three of the four chords I have to play a lot are all open strings. Yeah, this will be great on upright because, you know. It's like intonation right. isn't as much of an issue or whatever. Um, so from the production standpoint, it's I don't use it all the time, but it's a really, really magical thing to add to a track. And the bass, this one I have is not a great bass at all. It needs work and it's plywood bass, but um, it adds something special. And so I'm totally not ashamed of using it in the studio at all. But um, but yeah, not something I'd be doing live for sure. Sure. I get, I get not the best bass. I love, I love my upright, but it's a, it's a uh, 58k, mm. you know, one, one of the sort of send away some money and get it shipped to you kind of bases, and it's a quarter size. And the guy I bought it from, uh, he didn't do it, but the 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 person he bought it from immediately before him, I think, had a really bad neck break on it, and and I don't know who the luthier was that fixed it, but it just is not a clean repair job Uh, Um, so it's kind of this it's kind of this kind of quirky funky weird instrument it but it it, damn if i if i didn't have it the amount i've used it in studio is fun um as for upright in the studio um you've talked some about cosa nostra and and all of that um and, and you know, it's it's very much a a as far as instrumentation, it's a pretty you know standard kind of string section, and then you on trombone um, amongst other musicians coming in and out. But I think of you four as kind of really cosa nostra. 
Um, have there ever been times in the studio where you use upright voices in that setting? Hmm. Oh yeah, uh, we did. I mean, it's been something I've been wanting to do a lot. And sometimes in rehearsals, I'll play the upright, um, just kind of for fun. But on the album, the you know the self-title album that we put out uh, in 2020. This is called Costa Nostra Strings. Um, there's this track, Achilles Heel, that's like a really heavy, grooving, it's like acoustic music inspired by dubstep kind of. And nice. um, it just, since, we, since I had written it as a kind of like an EDM jazz thing and like lots of synths playing bass line stuff, I, it was lacking that. It's in C and just a lot, it uses the low C a lot. And the, the cello uh, is the was playing the bass line, and so I thought, oh man, I know this bass player, Sasha Jacobson, uh, amazing composer and band leader too. Uh, he's uses you know comes from the classical tradition as as well as jazz and improv and stuff, and he's has the low C extension, you know, like the symphony yeah. guys have, and he he really knows how to use it. And so I just was like, oh man, this would be so cool for this track, and. I, I checked with our cello player, Lewis, to make sure he wouldn't feel like I was encroaching on his territory because people like bass players and keyboard left hand keyboard, there's like this whole weird thing with that. Um, you know, it's just like an ongoing trip. Never just like, understood it. But it's like I, guitar I players and bass players, but bass player who shows up with a six string bass. It's like the same thing that the guitar player, like nine times out of 10 is going to like say something to them or give them a funny look. Or if the bass player starts playing some chords on like up on their neck on the six string, like guitar players got to say something funny. It's same thing. Anyway, going off on a tangent. And um, so, yeah, we had this had Sasha come in and it was so rad because Lewis has already the strings had already laid down their parts. And this was just like that icing on the cake thing, which is I mean, that's the like one of the fun things about producing is like when when you have like the basic stuff, like when the band knows their stuff and you just got the the track is there you have time to do some fun extra things uh that that is like the magic zone right and we were there because the band knew the track well and went down fast and just having sasha come in and i had a chart for him but i was like look the, the baseline's already there on the cello so we'll be doubling it a lot but also let's get out get out your bow and do some arco things and it, it added a lot of magic to it that even like a non-musician, if they listen to the track with it and without it, like they would totally notice. It just adds that octave lower. For the most right. part, he's just playing in an octave lower and it's just rumbling. Um, so that was a fun, fun first thing in in that group. I um, I'm pretty sure that's like one of the only times we've really, really done it, done it upright. But Lewis on the cello, he's a, a skilled bass player. And um, like a virtuoso cello player in a lot of different styles, like even in heavy metal and stuff. And so when I turn it over to him, like sometimes the song will start with me on bass and he'll be playing cello like in the string section, arco usually. And, and when it gets to the B section, like I pick up the trombone and he's playing pizzicato walking bass. And like it sounds more like a, a, an acoustic bass that you might you might want to hear like on a jazz song or whatever much more than my electric so it's a cool little little thing i mean it has its limitations um but it's as long as we've written in within them it's it totally works you know it's i prefer the sound of it to the electric on a lot of the, the music we play 
Every time I talk to Adam Thies, I find something new and interesting about him that I learn. Oftentimes, when I learn something new and interesting about Adam or about his process, I find myself modifying my own process as I've learned a new trick from him that will come in handy down the road. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this part of the conversation. I certainly have. I've learned a lot about both Adam and his thought process in making music. Tune in for part two. We're going to get a little bit more in-depth, and we're going to have our scheduled gear talk and music segments where we wrap up the AKG, Lyra, and Podcaster Essential Pack mic demo. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel, the D3 Cohen, signing out from Blue Girl Productions, worldwide headquarters and studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.